it seems like creatives always get a bad rap. From childlike tantrums and ridiculous green room requests, strange superstitions, and even self-mutilation, it's clear that artists have plenty of strange habits. But they've also made a pretty big impact on the world. Hi, I'm Kate Rooney. And I'm Jess Scuffy. And you're listening to Creatives Are the Worst, presented by Design Pickle, the leading flat rate graphic design and creative services platform. In this podcast, we'll be uncovering the fascinating myths and shocking stories behind the artists we love, or in some cases, love to hate, as we try to determine, are creatives the worst? Hello, and welcome to Creatives Are the Worst, presented by Design Pickle. I'm Jess Scuffy, and I'm joined, wow, honed, I was going to say, I'm honed by my host. And I'm my host. honed. I'm honed by my host, Kate Rooney. <laughs> That was perfect. Well done. Thanks. <laughs> I'm home by my host. I'm home by my host. Joined by my host. Preferable. What's going on today, Kate? Well, right off the bat, I have a correction oh, <laughs> from a previous let's episode. Let's get into it. <laughs> which, you know what? Maybe this is a sign of success, but this is the first episode where we've had multiple people reach out and be like, hey, <laughs> you got something wrong. <laughs> And it's it's not so much that I we got it wrong. It's more that I just can't read. So, <laughs> correction to the Marilyn Monroe episode, which I believe is two episodes ago. Marilyn Monroe was not born in 1962, you guys. That would be crazy if she was. She was actually born in 1926, which I actually had in my notes, but... As we've established before, Jess, I am not in the math department at Design well, Pickle. I was just going to say, after all the stuff you gave me in the Sandra episode about not being able to read, <gasps> just disc. It's coming full circle mm. now. I know. I am so ashamed. It's okay. But we'll move through it. Yes. It'll be great. Marilyn was born in 1926. Good to know. Good to know. She is not, in fact... 58 or however old she would be today if she were still alive it's great to know nice quick math i'm gonna assume that was correct well but yeah it is i have a reliable source on the matter <laughs> well uh, <laughs> <laughs> i didn't calculate that <laughs> i just know <laughs> and sure, we're sure. off the rails already it's gonna be a great episode Kate. Yes. you have a story for me today i'm pumped let's do it I do. And before we even get into that, though, I want to just uh, highlight some fun stories from Design Pickle in the past week. Oh, boy. Uh, which will kind of tie back into the episode. But we do a Friday music challenge That is true. Each week we do do that. Within Slack. So there's usually a theme, then everyone posts a song related to that theme. And... Someone had posted a music video from Alanis Morissette. Oh, boy. Uh, well, You Ought to Know is the song. And it turns out that Nico, who's our Global Ops VP, he thought the lyric said cross-eyed bear instead of cross-eye bear. So like a teddy bear, but, with, but cross-eyed. Oh, my God. As if that wasn't already bad enough, Kaylin, who does our recruitment, said the same thing. He's like, wait, it's not cross-eyed bear? <laughs> <laughs> so we have two people at Design Pickle who thought that Alanis's song, You Ought to Know, said it was talking about a bear with looking at its nose. You know what? They tried their hardest. And I personally 
mess up lyrics all the time. So I understand where they're coming from. Do you? No, in this particular <laughs> case, I feel like no, because I just don't think it makes sense for Alanis. But, you know, I'm trying to give them some, some, extra, <laughs> some extra props here. <laughs> That's kind of you. Well, many people think that the person that I'm covering today is perfect and doesn't make any mistakes. But you know what, Jess? Everyone's human. Everyone makes mistakes. And mistakes have indeed been made. But today's creative is one of the most influential people of our lifetime, Jess. A she. Yeah, I said it. (laughs) She has been a talk show host, news anchor, television producer, actress, entrepreneur, author, and philanthropist. You're doing it. In her career. You're doing it, aren't you? Ah, you know, you know, I'm doing it. Yeah, in her career spanning over 40 years, and her list of accolades is longer than a CVS receipt. So just to name a few, she's been honored at the Academy Awards, the Golden Globes, the Daytime Emmys, the Primetime Emmys, the NAACP Image Awards, and even the Presidential Medal of Freedom. I'm just going to keep drawing out this intro because it's so much fun. (laughs) Please do. (laughs) Because on top of all of her successes, her contributions have broken records and made history with the highest rated daytime show of all time, the first black woman to own a production company, and Jess, she first black female billionaire in the world. In the world. So today, Jess, you get an Oprah episode, and you get an Oprah episode, and you get an Oprah episode. We're, we're talking Oprah Winfrey today. Harpo Productions. Let's do That's this. That's right. Now, once again, I want to address anyone who might be saying, well, Oprah isn't a creative. I, uh, I respectfully disagree there because you don't become one of the 10 richest self-made women in America without a little creativity. And she has done so much more than just being a talk show host, which, I mean, is creative in its own right. But like I said before, she's an award-winning actress and producer, an incredibly gifted like public speaker, Yeah, has been credited with creating a totally different genre of media and media communications. And she remains not only the CEO of Oprah Winfrey Network, but also the chief creative officer. And (laughs) Oprah, I mean, my gosh, we obviously cannot cover every single detail of her life because there's so much across so many different channels. (laughs) We would be here all week. But instead, we're just going to go over some of her personal story, which is very interesting, and then just some pivotal Oprah moments. I am so so ready for this. My mom has actually been to her show when it was like the biggest show, (gasps) and we have a mug still at my parents' house. That's from the show that she got as a gift. I was going to say, did she get anything for free? She got a Harpo (laughs) mug. (laughs) Nice. Oh, let's post a pic of that. We shall someday do that. Okay. So, as always, all this information is based off of research and our own opinions. We do not want to get sued, but we do want to hear from you to hear what you think about Oprah in this episode. And clearly, we make mistakes, as we have seen from the top of this episode. So, holler at us if you want to yell at us some more. Yeah, we we welcome it. We welcome constructive criticism. It's totally fine. Let's see which dates I can get wrong in this episode. (laughs) Stay tuned. (laughs) (laughs) so how did oprah become oprah and 
This is probably more common knowledge than I realized, but her story is a true rags to riches story if there ever was one. We are talking about a child who literally was wearing potato sacks, no joke, and grew to have a $3 billion fortune. So how did that all happen? Well, Jess, thanks for asking. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for prompting me. Kate, how did she go from wearing potato sacks to her $3 billion fortune? I would love to know. Ah, Ah, yes. Well, let me tell you. It all started on January 29th. 1954. Confirmed. I think. Confirmed 1954. No. Okay. It might be 45. <laughs> no, it's 1954. When Orpa Gail Winfrey was born to Vernita and Vernon Winfrey at their isolated farm in Mississippi. I'm not even going to try to say the town name. It's like Kosciuszko. Oh. It looks Polish. Perfect. couple things to note here. First off, no, that wasn't a typo. She was actually named Orpa. <laughs> On her birth certificate, it's Orpa, because Orpa is a character in the Bible. So she was named after that character. And also, just because you're such a name person, Jess, you love to critique names. I don't know. When I was doing my dad said Vernita and Vernon. What your parents are? That's so cute. Yeah. I mean, it becomes less cute later on, but I don't know. Kind of. I mean, I didn't really <laughs> gravitate towards that, but now that you say it, it's kind of match made in heaven. It would seem, yeah. Yeah, it may have been eclipsed by the Orpa. Yeah, yeah. I'm still processing that. (laughs) Sure. So she explained in an interview that she grew up in, I mean, this area in Mississippi was super rural, not a lot of educated people in that area, and no one could spell or pronounce Orpa. It was just impossible. And people would just like flip the letters around. And so she just started going by Oprah and it stuck, and she used it everywhere else except for her birth certificate. So that's how she became Oprah. So interesting. Now, Vernita and Vernon, her parents, they separated soon after her birth. And she was left in the care of her maternal grandmother, Hattie Mae. And she grew up on the form. Uh, on the form. <laughs> the good old form. <laughs> she grew up on the form. <laughs> But her her grandmother, Hattie Mae, was very poor. She wore little dresses made out of potato sacks. It's all they could afford. And she was teased a lot for wearing that, which is really sad. But you know what? Right off the bat, Oprah was a smart and tenacious little nugget. She learned how to read at two and a half years old. Oh, my gosh. And I did have to look this up because I do not have children. Normally, it's kind of around four, anywhere between like four to seven years old. So two and a half years old. She's already reading. And she even wrote a letter to her kindergarten teacher giving all the reasons why she belonged in first grade. Oh. And so, isn't that so cute? I'm Orpa and I should be in first grade. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. I love it so much. So, so cute. Uh, but it worked. So uh, after that, she was promoted to third grade after that year. So she just skipped right ahead. She she wrote that strongly worded letter and was able to bump ahead like two grades, I think. But her parents are still separated and she's living with her grandmother. And this just caused a lot of turmoil in her life growing up. So around six years old, she sent to live with her mother at this point with her two half brothers over in Milwaukee. And this was an, an extremely poor and dangerous neighborhood. She did not do well here. It was pretty scary for her at this point. And then a few years later, she was sent to live with her father over in Nashville, Tennessee. And this was good for her for a brief period of time. She felt pretty safe and happy. 
And this is where she really started to make speeches at different social gatherings or at churches. And she realized that she knew that she wanted to be paid to talk at this point. She was really gifted at public speaking, and everyone nicknamed her the preacher. I feel like that's a very common theme that we see is like people know really early on. Maybe they don't know exactly what their path is going to entail and what they're going to become, but they have some idea and some drive to do the thing that they end up making their fortune on or their fame on, which is so interesting mm-hmm. that they all seem to know at such a young age. I mean, yeah, when I was that young. I wanted to be a professional ice skater. So no, I've talked about this before. I was going to work at SeaWorld. <laughs> yeah. You're going to work at SeaWorld. I had many aspirations, but ice skater, then I was going to be a doctor until I went to college. Like, you know, it all works out mm. differently, but people that end up being famous for something seem to always somewhat know. It's like they were put on this earth to do that very thing. I don't know. Mm-hmm. This kind of reminded me of Eddie Murphy because he was so good at being in front of an audience yes. in a crowd. Just kind of had that je ne sais quoi. But she started doing it even younger and knew that she was gifted at that. So she's doing great with her father, but she was still sent back to live with her mother. So she's kind of going back and forth between Milwaukee and Nashville. And I'm sorry to say that it does get a bit dark here. Oh, so no. Yeah, heads up. Orpa, but no. I know. Poor little Orpa. While she was living with her mother, again, in a very poor area, her mom was working odd jobs and just wasn't home a lot. And starting at around age nine, she was sexually abused by a family member. Oh, no. Yeah, it's it's awful. And this kind of becomes a, a point of discussion in her show and stuff later in life. But it, it didn't stop then. It continued all the way through her teens. And not just with this one family member. It was by another family friend, like people who were close within the family circle. So that's terrible. Uh, all that trust and everything is, is totally broken at such a young age. And what's really sad about this, too, is she kept silent about it for so many years while she was young. She didn't tell her mother about the abuse or anything like that. And in turn, she kind of began to act out a bit. And I think it's just, you know, a young child internalizing all of this and not knowing how to deal with it. I mean, act out. Some of this stuff is like common youth stuff, but skipping school, stealing money from her mother. She did run away at one point, but I think I did too. So (laughs) I don't know. I never tried to run away when I was a kid. I was like, this is such a comfy (sighs) life. I'm never going to run away. I Good for like, you, Jess. I think kid has, though. And I'm like, I kind of feel like I don't have that story to tell. But I think I was just well, too comfortable. <laughs> I'm happy for you. Thank okay? you. Thank you very much. No, when I ran away, I mean, it was like I packed a, a wagon up and maybe went like around the block. I think Baby Oprah probably. Cart. Baby Hold on, I need all my books. I'm going to go. I don't need you guys anymore. <laughs> Your gnome voice just came back. Oh, no. (laughs) Why was I just a gnome when I was a kid? (laughs) That would explain so much. (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah, I I don't think Orpa just went around the block. I think she actually tried to run away because her life was actually traumatic. Yeah, I wouldn't blame her at all if she actually tried to legit run away. Yeah, it gets worse, though. So after she runs away, her mother, Vernita, just could not handle it and sends Oprah back to Nashville to live with her father, which 
it seems like it would be the right move, but she was still struggling. And at age 14, she finds out that she is pregnant. <gasps> oh, shit. I don't like that. Yeah, do not like that. And she hid it from her parents uh, all the way up until she was seven months along. I don't want to go down a whole tangent about this, but I'm always so fascinated by that when... Yeah. Yeah, being able to, to hide pregnancies for that long. That's wild. But she's so young, too. It just breaks my heart. Oh, she, my gosh. That's horrible. Yeah, she didn't even tell her dad, her father, until the same day she went into labor. Holy <laughs> So if you do the math, yeah, she goes into labor super early. And she delivered a baby boy, but unfortunately, her son died within two weeks due to being premature. Oh my gosh, that's so sad. Like another trauma that she's dealing with on top of all the abuse trauma. I know. I just, and you're not even old enough to process what any of it means yet. It's it's heartbreaking, and we're in that story right now, and it's so sad. But if you kind of take a step out of it too, and you think about. Oprah as we know her today I yeah I just kind of like am speechless when I think about how she was able to become a one name person who has like (laughs) revolutionized everything across everything so for real uh yeah so she struggled a lot. I mean, she was super depressed after super depressed. I feel like that's yeah. minimizing it. This is hugely no, traumatic but- when this happens. But fortunately, she did have quite a pivotal moment at age 16 when she read I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings, the autobiography of Maya Angelou. Thank you, Jess. I struggled to say that name so many times. <laughs> I finally got through it. But reading this book completely transformed her outlook on life. If you don't know, this is a coming-of-age story that illustrates the strength of character and how a love of literature can help you overcome your trauma and racism, which is a huge part of the novel. And she was stated as saying, I read it over and over. I had never before read a book that validated my own existence. That's why representation matters. Oh, yes. Thank you. Absolutely. This book alone helped her get her life back on track. And like we said before, now she's Oprah. So representation matters. Reading matters. And reading will become a huge part of her life, as we'll come to find. That makes total sense for her. Mm -hmm. But after reading this, she started to really focus back on her education and her schoolwork. Returned to public speaking. She became an honor student. She was voted most popular girl. Again, not the first time we've seen this with our creatives, Mm-mm. that Genesee Qua. And she just joined a bunch of clubs, including the speech team. So she was really like just focused on working through the trauma and demonstrating her strength as a human being. So in 1970, she won a speaking competition at the local Elks Club, and that awarded her a four-year college scholarship to Tennessee State University. Love it. Mm-hmm. And after that year, she was invited to a White House conference on youth. And when she, so she did like a speaking session there. And when she came back, Nashville's radio station, WVOL, they invited her on for an interview. And they were so impressed by that. The station asked her to represent them in a local beauty pageant. So she does. She was the first black woman to win the competition. And the reason why I bring it up, it's not just because she was in a beauty pageant, but it led the station to hire her 
to read their afternoon newscasts. And this was all done by the time she's 17, mind you. (laughs) It's insane. (laughs) Right? It is insane. And like 17, three years ago, she went through this insane trauma and she just took charge and changed her life herself. And that's amazing. So it really is. Obviously had like a lot of natural gifts too, but there was so much work that was involved with her getting to this point. Yeah. So because she won the scholarship and everything, she goes to Tennessee State and continued to work in broadcast media while she's in college. And she eventually became the youngest news anchor and the first black anchor at Nashville's WTVF, which is different than the one I said before, by the way. And even then, she was still just a sophomore in college. That's so crazy. <laughs> uh-huh. Wow. Okay, so I know I just threw a lot of historical details at you, but I still think it's important because, like I said before, she's one of the most successful people on the planet. And I think just talking about her youth and all the stuff she went through and the opportunities she had, it just shows how she got there, despite all of the the odds being stacked against her. Because So resilient. So, Mm -hmm. like, you can just tell from those stories how determined she was to be successful. She was like, I'm not going to let mm-hmm. any of this trauma define me. I know what I'm good at. I'm going to pursue that. And by That's God, right. she did. Oh, yes. So after she graduates college, she moves to Baltimore to co-anchor at another station and soon moved to the morning talk show, Baltimore is Talking, with <laughs> co-host Richard Schur. Now I'm thinking of friggin' Hairspray. <laughs> You're talking about this. Nope, never seen that. Kate! Ugh. What? I'm sorry. You've never seen Breaking Bad. Get out of here. Um, But I did see Hairspray on Broadway, and it's really, really cool. It's like one of the coolest Broadway shows, just with the... Ew, Broadway. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> the costumes and stuff. You would love it. That's pretty neat. So she's on Baltimore's Talking, and while she's a co-host on the show, her ratings started to creep up with Phil Donahue's. Oh, hell yeah. So Phil Donahue, he's before my time, before your time, Jess, but for anyone else who is unfamiliar with him, he's like, he's the king of daytime talk show. Like, he's the one who created that category, and started all of it he's huge huge in the 80s so the fact that she's her ratings are like starting to be compare with his and she's still so young she's a black woman like that is bananas at this point yeah so then she makes another move over to chicago in 1984 and she takes over as anchor at am chicago and this is just a morning talk show that at this time had consistently low ratings but she changed the whole focus of the show from talking like about traditional women's issues to current and more kind of controversial topics, this ties back to kind of like Jerry Springer too, with like taking a show that had historically really low ratings and then totally changing the format and making the range just uh, skyrocket from here. That's where we see her creativity. That's right. So after one month of her hosting on the show, her ratings were tied with Phil Donahue's. Go Orpa. Orpa, and three months later, she was ahead. Oh my gosh, that's insane. Right. So now, at this point, our good friend Roger Ebert. (laughs) (laughs) I love that he's making another appearance. Oh, yeah, he's making another appearance. Uh, 
fun fact, Jess. Did you know that he dated Oprah? I did not know that. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. Me neither. I mean, I think they only went on like one, like a handful of dates, maybe just one. But he was also super pivotal in in her success. So Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel are scheduled to appear on Chicago AM with Oprah. And alongside them, they, they will also be appearing with a vegetarian chef and four little people dressed as chipmunks who were scheduled to sing and dance with hula hoops. So, I just <laughs> already Alvin and the Chipmunks play. I guess I don't know. It's so interesting. <laughs> yes, but with hula hoops, just more fun. But in the song, they so dur- sing "Me, I want a hula hoop." So maybe it is. <laughs> Oh, that makes sense. Maybe that's what they were singing. But during the chef, the chef segment, the chef knocked over a blender and sprayed pureed zucchini all over the interview couch. Oh, God. And Oprah, in pure Oprah fashion, just turns over the cushions of the couch and just says, okay, boys, sit down and don't mention the zucchini. <laughs> that's incredible. And Roger Ebert recounts that there was zucchini just literally dripping in his shoes all over the place. And the chipmunks were laughing so hard. I mean, sorry, the the little people dressed as chipmunks. They weren't actual chipmunks. They were laughing so hard. They were almost unable to perform because it was just such a cluster. And this is the moment, though, that Roger realizes that Oprah is just a natural. She knows what she's doing. But he said that she just needed a better booker. That's so funny. That's what we call crisis management, people. Right? I know. And after this, Roger asks Oprah out on a date. And you know what? Actually, I, I, they did go on a couple dates. I, I do recall that now. But in one particular date, they were at Hamburger Hamlet. He, are you, Do you know what that is? Because I don't. I've heard of it before. I don't think it exists anymore, but it's definitely a Chicago thing. Yeah. So while they're at Hamburger Hamlet, he starts jotting down some numbers on a napkin, just doing some like crazy quick math that I couldn't do. And he starts calculating how much money she'd make if she syndicated her talk show instead of doing what she's doing now. And just like this feels like a scene out of a movie, but he just slides the napkin across the table and Oprah looks at it and goes, done deal. Oh my gosh, that's so cool. Mm-hmm. So even though their relationship didn't work out in 1985, they expanded her show to one hour and renamed it The Oprah Winfrey Show. Love it. That's so cool how she got there because of chipmunks and zucchini juice. (laughs) Right? What a story for the ages. I mean, she got there with more than just that, but zucchini juice and chipmunks had a lot to do with it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And with that, let's take a quick break. Hey, Jess, what's green and swims in the sea? (laughs) I don't know. Moby Pickle. (laughs) I can't. I know. Okay, I know that's the worst, but you know what's not the worst? Design Pickle. That's right. Design Pickle is the world's leading flat rate creative services platform, offering so many features like unlimited requests, unlimited revisions, Adobe source files, brand profiles. You name it, Design Pickle does it. And on top of that, they offer a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, meaning you have a full month to try it out and see if it's a good fit for you and your business. And if you're a listener of this podcast, you can use promo code WORST at checkout to get $100 off your first month of any plan. That's right. Just use checkout code WORST, all caps, and you'll get $100 off your first month. A pretty sweet deal, indeed. So... 
Let's talk about the Oprah Winfrey show, shall we? We shall. When the show debuted in 1986, no one would have predicted how popular it would become. Because obviously this is a profession traditionally dominated by white males, like Phil Donahue. And Oprah was using a kinder, gentler, more informative style in her approach to interviewing. And it was almost kind of like therapy, which became its own style of interviewing called Oprahfication, but we'll touch on that a little bit more later. And Oprah also used her show as kind of an educational platform. So talking about her book clubs, all the interviews, and all of her philanthropic endeavors. But interestingly, I did not know this. The show never, well, I don't think it does now, but when it started, it never profited off the products it endorsed. So she never had like a licensing agreement with all the Hmm. retailers or the publishers when products were promoted on her show. That's very interesting. Yeah. Usually when a show is promoting a product, they're almost always getting a kickback from it, but not Oprah. Even around this time, it became the highest rated television talk show in the United States and earned several Emmy Awards. The show itself lasted for about 25 years and had over 5,000 episodes. But let's talk about some of the interviews and segments that she had. So she's always had kind of like the biggest like bombshell interviews. She has stated that her worst interview was none other than Elizabeth Taylor, oddly enough, in season two. Interesting. Which, yeah, you wouldn't really expect that out of all of the crazy interviews she's had. But apparently Elizabeth Taylor just requested that Oprah did not ask her about any of her relationships. But Oprah found that very difficult because at the time, Elizabeth Taylor had been married seven times and that was like the main thing that everyone wanted to hear. So she was, there was a lot of push and pull with that. And Oprah claimed it was her worst interview. I would be pissed. I wouldn't even have that person on the show at that point. Like if you're coming on Oprah, you kind of know what you're signing up for. And if you're not willing to talk about it, it's like, then what else do you want to talk about, Liz? Huh? What other topics do you have for me? That's annoying. Yes. I was trying to think of another topic they could talk about, but I got nothing. (laughs) In 1993, she had a very special broadcast when none other than Michael Jackson at Neverland Ranch. Oh, (laughs) And this would become the most watched interview in TV history at this point because Michael Jackson had not given an interview in 14 years. So she gets like the scoop at the place to do it. And some of the things that came out from this, he talked a lot about his childhood and his relationship with his father, Joe Jackson, and also attempted to dispel any rumors about his skin color, which was like a big deal at the time. So yeah, but then there was also the very infamous interview with Tom Cruise. (laughs) I knew you were going to bring that up. Uh In 2005, where... As many of us know, Tom Cruise jumps up on the couch and is just so excited about his relationship with Katie Holmes. And you know what? I was like, ooh, this is going to be such a juicy story to talk on the podcast. But I couldn't find like any other details about it. It was just like, yeah, that happened. And that was it. And even Oprah, like when people would ask her about it, she's like, yeah, he was very enthusiastic. Like she was like super uh, had her... PR brain on when she discussed it. She never said anything bad about Tom Cruise. Hmm. It was just like he was very enthusiastic. He was happy. I would like an investigative journalist to dive into that story a little bit deeper. But that's just Yeah, me. and I'm like, sir, are you okay? Yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> I've seen the whole thing as I'm sure many of our listeners have, and it's like mm-hmm. his actions don't match the setting and the context 
in which she's currently existing in. So it's just a little odd. Exactly. And we can go on a whole other tangent about this, but especially with all the stuff coming out recently with Scientology, it just seems even stranger. Uh I don't have anything juicy to report here, but... I just also want to point out that Celine Dion appeared. Your girl. My girl. I'm obsessed with Celine Dion. She appeared on Oprah's show more than any other celebrity. Celine. A total of like 28 times. Wow. So Celine, your heart will go on. <laughs> you couldn't resist, could moment. you? Could not. <laughs> so some other notable guests and moments that happened on the show. It's hard to choose because there's so many. I mean, this yeah. show's going on for so long. But just a couple that I thought were really interesting. But in one interview she had with a woman named Trudy Chase, uh, this is a woman who had dissociative identity disorder. And she claimed to have 92 distinct personalities. 92? 92. 92. All, mm-hmm. Good Lord. Distinct personalities that were within her. And while this sounds like insane or crazy or whatever, she talked about how she had been abused growing up, which uh, sounds like it contributed to her illness. And in this episode, Oprah unexpectedly breaks down in tears and was recalling her own childhood abuse. And even at one point, just asked the producers to stop filming. So this is where we see like she brings in her own trauma and personality into her show. And I think this is kind of like her creative insight, which brought a new sense of like reality and rawness to tv that hadn't really been seen before was that the first time she talked about her abuse publicly i think so yeah wow i could be wrong about that but yeah i think this is the first time it like really came out in her show and it was a huge emotional moment moving on to something (laughs) a little bit crazier but uh in 1988 this is where she uh, had her Diet Dreams Come True episode, which has been <laughs> very iconic in uh, pop culture. But it's been known that Oprah has, had been s- struggling with her weight from time to time and did a lot of dieting stuff. So she was quoted as saying, the reason I gained so much weight in the first place and the reason I had such a sorry history of abusive relationships with men was I just needed approval so much. I needed everyone to like me because I didn't like myself much. So I'd end up with these cruel, self-absorbed guys who tell me how selfish I was. And I'd say, oh, thank you. You're so right. And be grateful to them because I had no sense that I deserved anything else, which is also why I gained so much weight later on. It was the perfect way of cushioning myself against the world's disapproval. That is so horrible and so sad. It's really sad. But you know what? I will say I really applaud going back to what you were saying before like she really did pave the way for people to be more open in entertainment and television like essentially her show is there to entertain she never set out and people don't set out to make shows to like talk about issues but I feel like she kind of changed that and changed the landscape Mm -hmm. to make it okay to do so and I think Busy Phillips comes to mind like her show Mm. she was very open about all the issues she's had all the things that she's gone through personally and I think you know, Oprah probably is a big influence behind that and everyone else Mm -hmm. that does it, regardless of if they realize it or not. Oh, yeah. So much so that, I mean, there's a whole term for it, the Oprahfication. That's that's what that style is called. And going back to like the Phil Donahue days, that 
style of media was more just information. Here are the facts. Exactly. Here's what's going on. Whereas Oprah brings in the vulnerability and the personal touch to that, which had never been done before, but people really, really resonate with. You know what else I'm just thinking of as we're talking about this? Late Night still hasn't gone through that evolution. Late Night is such mm. short snippets that are so curated by the celebrities' publicist and like games are fun and whatever and they'll have some viral moments on YouTube, but they really haven't evolved. And I think the pandemic kind of changed that a little bit for some of the hosts. I know Jimmy Fallon was very open and honest and raw about, you know, how his feelings were about living in New York during the pandemic, during the um, mm -hmm. spike of it in New York and things like that. But it'll be interesting to see if that segment of television ever goes through an evolution because I still feel like it's pretty by the book and archaic in that sense. I agree 100%. I think the pandemic has changed it. Seeing, I'll never forget the first time like watching Jimmy Fallon while he's at home and he literally has his kids crawling on top of him. He's just yeah. like, you can see how stressed he is. And he's just like, we're just, we're doing it live. I don't know. Yep. We just got to go. So it'll be interesting to see now. And before we totally go off the rails again, I think someone else who's kind of changed the game a little bit there is, oh my gosh, I'm totally blanking on his name, but the host of Hot Ones. Sean Evans. Yeah, Sean Evans, thank you. The, I mean, just in general, YouTube and interviews on YouTube has changed this a bit. But I think his style of like getting huge names, but getting them in a pretty vulnerable spot and asking them really unique questions that aren't just the standard stuff. How was your movie? Like it's, it's That's let's so do a deep true. dive. And you can tell they have no clue what they're being asked. So they <laughs> have to agree to some sort of terms with their publicists ahead of time. Like, Hey, you're going into this blind and you have to be okay with that. And that's the whole point. And I love that aspect of entertainment as I think we all do. Very cool. Yeah. So anyways, going back to Oprah's die dreams come true. Like I said, she'd been struggling to lose weight, and she started the OptiFast diet, which was a, the, all the rage at the time. And on her show, she revealed her very dramatic weight loss by literally wheeling out a wagon of fat on the show <laughs> in front of a live studio audience. And I saw the clips of this. It's crazy. I mean, it's literally like one of those little red wagons and it's just like slabs of gross fat on it Ew, uh, uh -huh. <laughs> it was quite a moment and a huge deal at the time but oprah has referred to that moment as her ego in a pom-pom salute and she called it the biggest mistake of her career because she was basically like starving herself and just gaining the weight back anyways but promoting it as like oh look at my diet dreams come true interesting but even going back to that quote earlier, it, it, a lot of it kind of, it sounds like it stemmed from trauma. So it's really sad that she's like promoting it. It's like, look what I can do. But yeah. she's feeling real sad internally. Another segment, which I found super, super interesting, was in 1987, where Oprah travels to Forsyth County, Georgia. I may be saying that incorrectly. Where no black person had lived for 75 years. No, what? Mm-hmm. It's aye, aye. a historically very, very racist county. I would say so. Yeah. And I mean, I, I won't get to the whole history, but they back in, I don't know, 1930s or so, they like literally pushed or like were killing people and, and like forced them all out of that area. So she interviews people at a town hall meeting and I watched this and like when I first put it on, I audibly gasped 
at this because there are people outside who are protesting her show with like full on KKK hoods, Confederate flags and like signs and chants that I will not repeat on this show. And I just got the chills even thinking about it right now. Same. And Oprah's literally in a room with all white people and her just presence and demeanor in all of this is very inspiring because she has her head held up high with people who are just like hate her for no reason at all. She also allows the head of the committee to keep forceth white. That's an actual committee. She allows him to speak and he gets up with the microphone and says, I'm opposed to communism, race mixing, low morals, and homosexuals are of low morals, in my opinion. So they just, like, hate everything. Ugh. God, I hate them. Mm-hmm. But even, like, when the people are stirring around the audience, she's, like, calming them down. Like, let him speak. He's allowed to speak. Like, she's very professional in the whole thing. And it was wow. very enlightening. Uh, there were some people in the audience, uh, like in the town hall, who were supportive and like wanted to make the community more diverse, but the majority were there to, uh, yeah. That's disgusting. So, uh, it, yeah, and uh, Oprah and her crew, they knew like they had to leave town before sundown because it was so dangerous. But Jess, because Oprah did this, it just created like a huge conversation around it. And it changed a lot of people's minds and they welcomed a lot more of the black community in. And 24 years after the episode aired, Forsyth became one of the fastest growing places for the black community to live in Georgia. Oprah did that. That's the Oprah effect, I guess. That is... The fact that she was able to convince people that are that, like, they're so stuck in their terrible ways to open their minds and their hearts, really, Mm -hmm. to such a something that's so ingrained in them for so many years. Like, that's just, that's so amazing to me. Mm -hmm. I thought she was very, very brave in doing so. Yeah. And it became kind of a mission. I mean, there was a whole campaign around it after she did that trip. But, I mean, she actually, like, changed history. She did. became from this place where there had been no Black Americans living there for 75 years, and then it became a way more inclusive community. So That's amazing. And then in 2004, one of the greatest promotional stunts in TV history aired where (laughs) Oprah gave every member of the audience a new Pontiac G6. So R.I.P. Pontiac. (laughs) Wait, what? Pontiac doesn't exist anymore. Oh, come on. First, you're going to tell me about Roger Ebert and now this. (laughs) I'm so sorry. Did you not know that? Why would I know that? Just because she gave them all away? I think she did. (laughs) This is our going out of business sale. We're just going to give them all away on Oprah. (laughs) Shoot. No, but still tell the story because it's so fun. Wow, mine is blown right now. Well, (laughs) apparently Oprah Oprah had asked producers to fill the crowd with people who really needed a car. And I know. And when she announced the prize, it was straight mayhem because the way they presented it it was everyone in the audience has a box to open and one person is going to have a key in it and they're going to win the car so everyone's expecting that just like one person's going to have it not knowing that literally all of them are opening up a box with a key and this of course is where the catchphrase comes from and you get a car (laughs) and you get a car they literally had medical experts on site for people who fainted from excitement in which 
there were many <laughs> and it's uh, it's so crazy to watch that segment because you can see kind of like the waves of understanding go through the audience because at first it's just like confusion because they all think one person's getting it but then they all realize they all have them it's like you could see that pass through the crowd as the realization creeps in and oprah was so excited she was screaming and like just pure chaos madness fun stuff i love the new iteration of that gif that says you get a taco you get a taco (laughs) i don't even know what you're talking about just give me all the mexican food and i'm happy (laughs) my favorite is what it's just like a gif of her doing the like pointing and shouting but then there's like a bunch of bees flying out of the screen (laughs) you get bees doesn't make any sense well that's a good pop culture references from that moment now for sure now despite all of these fun moments and exciting things and being the highest rated daytime talk show in american television the oprah winfrey show is not without its own controversy of course particularly when it comes to enabling quote-unquote junk science you enabling what now junk science ah okay you cut out a little bit, so I heard something very different than that. <laughs> oh, oh no. So in 2004, Dr. Oz makes his first appearance on the show and became a regular medical expert. Uh, I have thoughts about him. Oh, do tell. <laughs> I mean, he could probably be his own episode. <laughs> he could, because he eventually got his own show, and this was all launched on Harpo Productions, her production company, which we'll touch on later. And he used his platform to promote very questionable health practices. I think one of the biggest, in my opinion, is his support of John of God, which is a Brazilian spirit medium who claimed to cure people of their afflictions through spiritual healings. But basically, he was performing medical procedures without any anesthesia, and none of it was real. But Dr. Oz gave him a voice and de facto... Oprah Winfrey gave him a voice. I also just really don't like the way that he talks about food and like dieting Mm. for people. Like he promotes all these wacky things. Like you should only drink juice. And I'm like, but people believe you and that's not healthy. Yeah. It's, it's real bad. What's also real bad is Dr. Phil. (laughs) Oh, I vey. People pretty much say that Oprah created Dr. Phil and she kind of did in a way because I mean, Dr. Oz, as crazy as he is, he at least has an actual medical degree, whereas Dr. Phil does not. So calling him Dr. Phil is problematic in its own right. Yep. Uh, But he got his start on, on the Oprah Winfrey show while working as a consultant, oddly enough. And by the late 90s, he was just a regular on the show as a life coach. And like Dr. Oz, he eventually got his own show, as you may or may not know. And oh, just my Nana watches it still to this day. Oh, really? <laughs> she loves it. Yeah. Oh, dear. Yeah. I, I think, know. I think my mom's into Dr. Phil, too. It's just, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there. I we could, again, do a whole thing on Dr. Phil. Don't want to. But uh, one nope. story. <laughs> no. He had Todd Herzog on a show, who's a former winner on Survivor. Because he was struggling with addiction. And when Todd arrived at the studio, there was a bottle of vodka in his dressing room. And he also claimed that he was given Xanax to calm his nerves. So, 
Mm. Oh, so we're just going to drug people and then exploit mm-hmm. them for television ratings? Yeah. Oh, okay, cool. Cool, 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 cool. No doubt. And then more recently, Dr. Phil made some very controversial statements about his perspective on the COVID lockdowns. And his stance on it is basically like, it happens, people die, and we don't really need to take precautions. <laughs> so Okay. Well, I'm just going to shut my mouth before yeah. I get too into... <laughs> Well, let's Other move topics. on. Cause, I mean, <laughs> lastly, I mean, she's Oprah has given Jenny McCarthy a platform to uh, peddle her nope. own pseudoscience and all of her nope. anti-vaccine propaganda. Yeah. No. Nope. <laughs> once again, Harpo Productions signed Jenny to do her own talk show. So giving a lot of these people a big, big platform. Yeah, no, I could go on all about the anti-vaxxing component and the science behind that in the actual medical journals, but I will not. I will refrain. As a reminder, this is just our own opinions, and yep. that is that. But last April, Family Guy creator Seth MacFarlane called Oprah out for her role in purveying pseudoscience especially in the midst of a, a global pandemic. In a tweet, he accused her of using her platform to amplify dubious voices. And he stated, it's a strange dichotomy that I think a lot of people, particularly right now, are having trouble reconciling. You know, this person who has done all of this positive work for the world, he means Oprah, and yet somehow has gotten caught up in this web of junk science on many occasions. So how do you feel about that, Jess? Oprah, well, Orpa. Amazing Orpa, who's done all this amazing stuff, she's still, I mean, Dr. Phil Saul's the show, still pushing this stuff. It seems to me like she probably went through a phase where she needed ratings or was like valuing that more than honest conversations that made her rise to this level of fame. And then she probably doesn't want to say, oh, you know, it was wrong of me to do that because it's natural for any person in the limelight to want to do that. Mm -hmm. But to me, it would be better, again, putting on my PR hat, (laughs) giving the same advice all over again. Just admit it. Just apologize. Just say, you know what? Probably wasn't the best use of my platform. Mm -hmm. I'm going to instead promote these two, three creators that are, you know, really good at XYZ. That's my professional opinion. Quick question, though, about your PR hat. Is it a beret? Of course. Good. What other hat would it be? (laughs) It also comes with a matching pair of sweatpants. Oh, cute. Okay, so we're going to... Zero zero percent of people will get that joke right now. If you've watched our bloopers, you will. Go watch our bloopers. So we're going to... We're jumping around the timelines, but that's just because so much has has gone on in Oprah's life. But we're going to go back in time a bit. Before the Oprah Winfrey show went national, Oprah appeared in the 1985 adaption of The Color Purple by author Alice Walker. And growing up, Oprah was obsessed with this book, so much so that she would literally walk around with multiple copies just to hand out to people. And I know. It's cute. She knew all the characters inside and out. And when she heard that they were talking about doing a movie about this, she like knew she wanted in. But then in 1985, oh, I guess it's the same year, Quincy Jones saw Oprah on TV and thought she would be a perfect fit for the film that he happened to be co-producing with Steven Spielberg. Now, Oprah auditioned, but she didn't hear back for three months. So she was actually convinced that she didn't get the role because of her weight. And... Oh. 
she went off to a quote unquote fat farm in Wisconsin. Not another one. Uh, I know. Well, Carrie yeah, we went to one too. <laughs> call back to the Carrie episode. Another fat farm. I'm sure there's a more PC term for that, but I mean that's. But no, because but the no. concept it's it's just not good. Yeah. So while she was there, though, in Wisconsin, she was kind of like coming to terms with, oh, I didn't get selected for the film. I'm just going to work through it. Yeah. She was like literally on the track doing laps when she gets a call from Steven Spielberg, of all people. Super casual. And on the phone, he offered her the role of Sophia. And on the phone call said, if you're trying to lose weight, stop it right now. So, yeah, he but I mean, to the point where it was like, if you continue to lose any more weight, you cannot even be in this part. So it was like the opposite of what she thought it was. She did not need to lose any weight. Uh, She was perfectly fine as is. And she was so excited to do the film, but she had never acted before. I mean, she's just been doing her show and interviews. So she really struggled with that and particularly with the emotional scenes. Like she could not cry, but part of it was because she was just so happy to be there. <laughs> That's so funny. She, yeah, she's even quoted saying like she would think about her dog that died and whatnot. Like she just did not have the skills to bring the tears. She even tried like taking salt and uh, putting it in her eyes and everything. But she got like so, <laughs> so hard. <extreme. laughs> I know she was so hard on herself about it. Like one night when she, or after filming all day and she could not get emotional for a scene, she was back in her hotel room by herself and just, she was crying about the fact that she couldn't cry on camera. And uh, she, she really thought that she was going to get fired from the film, but this was kind of an aha moment for her. She realized yeah. she just had to like surrender herself to the role and that became a big part of it for her. It's like, I'm just lending my body to this character and I just got to let it all go. Yep. As they would say, as Elsa would say, let it go. Let it and go. And <laughs> that, that worked for her because she was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress in her performance. And to just further capitalize on her success, Oprah formed Harpo Productions in 1986, shortly after. This is, of course, Oprah spelled backwards, but it's also a character in the color purple. And after she does this, she purchased a state-of-the-art production studio in Chicago and just took over ownership and production of the Oprah Winfrey show. She's like, I got this. I have my own production studio now. I'm fine. And it made her the first Black American to own their own entertainment production company. Wow. Mm -hmm. That's insane that she was the first one, and that was the late 80s. Yeah, right? That's... I'm not surprised, but I am disappointed. Thank you, Oprah. (laughs) In addition to The Color Purple, Oprah also starred and produced the adaptation of the Pulitzer Prize winning novel Beloved by Toni Morrison. Uh, And this is uh, inspired by the story of Margaret Garner, who was a runaway slave who killed her own daughter rather than return her to the horrors of slavery, basically. But like The Color Purple, it was not an easy road to get there. I love this story because like The Color Purple, Oprah loved this book and really wanted to do something with it. But she had to get in touch with Toni Morrison first. But uh, Toni, she she had an unlisted number, was very hard to get in touch with. So Oprah Winfrey calls the fire department near where Toni Morrison lived and just told them, call Toni and tell her that Oprah called. (laughs) 
called oh the fire station to do that. That's iconic. I want to do that to someone. <laughs> what the heck? Please don't ever do that to me. But it worked. <laughs> Tony called her back that very evening, and the two oh, discussed a film deal. God. Can you imagine being the person from the fire department that's like, um, Tony? Oprah called? I don't know how to tell you this, but Oprah called. <laughs> Is there an emergency? Like, yeah, Oprah called. Yeah. Get on the phone right now. It is a stage five level of an emergency. Wee wee. Yeah. <laughs> it took 11 years to finish this film, though. What? Yeah. Isn't that bananas? It just cycled through like a ton of different scripts, a ton of different directors. It just took a long time to get finished. And apparently, uh, to prepare for the role, as Seth, the protagonist, Oprah experienced a 24-hour simulation of an actual, like, slave experience. And that included her being tied up and blindfolded and, and left in the woods and everything. Ugh, I hate that. I hate it. Yeah. What's even crazier is that at the time that it came out, after 11 years of trying to get this production done, the film was like a total box office bomb. And it was beat out by the Bride of Chucky. <laughs> oh my God! Of all the films, of are you all kidding? The films. Oprah said of that she all ate all <laughs> the films. The Bride of Chucky. She she said that she ate thirty pounds of mac and cheese after finding this out, and just sent her into a whole major depression. Uh, yeah, that's terrible. You take eleven years to film something and make it come to life, and then the Bride uh -huh. of Chucky. Are you the kidding? Of all of all the movies. Come on. It could be anything else. It could be a dumb rom-com for all I care. But yeah. the Bride of Chuck. But despite all of this, it was nominated for Best Costume Design at the Academy Awards. Okay. But in more recent years, critics have kind of like re-examined its cultural value. And it's been kind of determined that it may have been unfairly judged in 1998. Do you think it was one of those things where it was too far ahead of its time for when it was released? Literally, my next note is Oprah said the movie was ahead of its time. <laughs> and it, it taught her just a lesson. Yeah. So there we go. So given her involvement with The Color Purple and Beloved, it's obviously no secret that Oprah loves to read. Oprah's book club. Mm -hmm. So much so that in 1996, she started a new segment on her show that would rock the world of publishing, Oprah's book club. Man, can you imagine getting the call from someone <laughs> that you're on that list as an author? Oh, man, that would be the biggest, biggest thing, unless you are a certain author. We'll talk about in a second. But oh boy. yeah, her book club, it's still going on, but just in a different format. But spanning over two decades with, I think we're at like 86 book selections now and counting. But it is a cultural force. It got so many more Americans to read and like made books uh, the topic of discussion again. And once again, like at the time of launch, she really had no idea that it would be such a phenomenon. Um, Do you think she really didn't know, or was she just like, oh, I didn't know? Well, it, it kind of came out naturally. I didn't include this in my notes, but there was someone who worked on The Color Purple who gifted Oprah with a book, and then they ended up just like chatting over time about their love of books and sharing like what they were reading and stuff like that. And then this person, can't remember their name, said like, well, how come you don't like do this on your show? And Oprah's like, huh. Yeah, I should. <laughs> so that's, it kind of came up on a whim. And keep in mind, too, I mean, that 
was never a thing before. People didn't talk about books so much on True. national television programs. So it was a little bit of a risk, but obviously it paid off. And Oprah herself would choose all the titles herself. And she would also prop up lesser known authors, which is really interesting. So when you said like, oh, can you imagine being that person, like the author who gets it? Like that is an author's big break but like the hugest yeah. break you can get so it's the equivalent of like an influencer finding a small business product that they love and then mm-hmm. blasting it to their millions of followers in today's day and age like totally it's, exactly so the first book that she recommended was the deep end of the ocean by Jacqueline Mitchard and at that time only 68,000 copies had been printed but after Oprah's recommendation that number skyrocketed to over 750,000 mind-blowing <laughs> like overnight mm-hmm And this jump would happen literally every time that Oprah released a new book pick. So any modestly selling titles would just become bestsellers in a week. That's insane. You mentioned this before, Jess. And so I wonder if you knew this was actually a thing. But this would become what is known as the Oprah effect, which actually has a legal definition. It sure Uh, does. So this is the definition... (laughs) From uslegal.com, the Oprah effect is an expression referring to the effect that an appearance on the Oprah Winfrey show or an endorsement by Oprah Winfrey can have on a business. So an endorsement from Oprah can turn a small, unprofitable business into a multi-million dollar company overnight. So in layman's terms, Oprah has the golden touch. That is the Oprah effect. People listen to her. Mm -hmm. And this isn't even like limited to books. This influence has impacted other industries like Dr. Phil, like we just talked about, the food industry with Rachel Ray, Uh, Nate Berkus with his whole like interior design. That all came from Oprah. Love him. Mm -hmm. He has a Target deal now. Uh huh. Thanks, Oprah. And (laughs) heck, I mean, she's even influenced politics, which when she endorsed Obama, that was like a huge thing. Like the Oprah effect took place in American politics. But let's go back to her book club for a minute here, because with great power comes great responsibility. (laughs) (laughs) And like the show, the book club itself has had its own share of controversies. Most famously, I think, was the debacle with James Frey and his book, A Million Little Pieces. And this novel, which was selected for the book club in 2005, was describing James Frey's uh, experience with addiction and quickly climbed the bestsellers list. This is like a huge, huge book. I remember when this happened. But then about a year later, there was an expose that, that was published claiming that uh, the sources from his book were totally falsified just to make it more dramatic, like nothing was really true. Uh, Oprah was not happy about this. <laughs> and <laughs> oh, no. oh, yeah, the same year she confronts him on the show. And he it's it's like very uncomfortable. She totally grills him and just says, like, I feel duped and you betrayed all of us. And she was pissed <laughs> for good reason. I mean, uh-huh. good for her for confronting him. Yeah. It was her endorsement, and he lied about a lot of stuff. And it's interesting to watch it because he just like sits there like, ooh, boy, you don't want to piss Oprah off. No, you don't. Yeah. So even before that, in 2001, she selects Jonathan Franzen's novel, The Corrections, for the club. But this is what I said before. like Some people would not be happy about being selected, and that would be Jonathan Franzen. He was not happy about being selected for a book club. Just quick note, Jonathan Franzen, I don't know how people feel about him, but he has been called being very 
elitist and egotistical and arrogant. So just put that in your pipe. Spare me. Yeah. But he like publicly disparaged Oprah and her literary taste in different interviews, really implying that her book club was just frivolous. It was chicklets. And he said that her selections were schmaltzy, one-dimensional novels. And he claimed that his audience was mostly men. And so he was pissed about this because he thought that his male audience would be put off by seeing her branding. Oh, shut up. It's so pretentious. <laughs> and he also did not like the idea of just her book club logo being on the book, which, okay, I can agree with to some extent. Fair. Fair. That's fair. Fine. But he didn't stop there. So he like mocked the show and just would say stuff like, I've never stooped so low as to actually watching it. And then even uh, kind of accused, discreetly accused Oprah of hitching her wagon to the high art literary tradition. So he's just like, oh, shut up. Oh, my God. Yeah. But like I said, like a lot of people already called him egotistical and arrogant. So, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) It checks out for me. (laughs) Check, check, check. But obviously, Oprah took offense to all of this, and she withdrew his invitation to the show. Because anytime someone gets selected, they are invited to the show. You don't piss Oprah off, okay? She got more American Street and did choose some like really incredible novels and got a lot of authors off the ground. So yeah, she withdrew the invitation, and Franzen went on like this big apology tour. Of course he did. Of course he did. Didn't think about it when he was saying it, but you know. Well, even some of the, uh, I'm not going to read more quotes because I'm struggling at that today. But I mean, even his apologies were like, these are so backhanded. You can totally tell. But Oprah, our girl, in 2010, she actually selects another one of his novels. Maybe, I don't know if it was like her trying to um, extend an olive branch, maybe. Yeah. Or maybe it's like, (laughs) I'm going to do it anyways. (laughs) Who knows? Who knows? Who's Who to knows? Say? But to paraphrase Carolyn Kellogg of the Los Angeles Times, this perhaps marked a reconciliation, a kind of bringing together a former literary antagonist and a generous move of closure for people who love books. And that would be so very Oprah. Amazing. But now coming back to more current times, in 2020, Oprah selected a book called American Dirt by author Janine Cummings. And this is about a mother and her son fleeing Mexico to the U.S. to escape cartel violence. I have heard of this book. Mm, Have you? Mm -hmm. There's been a lot of controversy about it because upon publication, the book has been heavily criticized for quote, having exploited the experience of migrants and repackaging it as opportunistic trauma porn for a predominantly white publishing industry. Yep. Yep. And more than 100 authors have signed an open letter to Oprah to reconsider her pick. So this was like already stirring up a ton of controversy, but Oprah's response to it, she decided to kind of like lean into the conversation a bit. So Nowadays, Oprah's Book Club has its own Apple TV Plus series, which is a whole other thing that we're not even going to talk about. But in a two-part episode, she hosted a panel with Cummings, the author, as well as three Latina writers who have been like publicly outspoken about the book. Uh, Julissa, R.C., Esther uh, Cepeda, and Reina Grande. And when they open the show, uh, Oprah explains why she chose the book and kind of defending it a little bit. 
But the, the author isn't Mexican. And she just said that like, oh, you know, I believe that anyone has the right to use their imagination and their skills to tell stories, which fair enough. Okay. But mm, the panel did not really agree and they did not hold back in the series. So uh, Sabra, she says, for some reason, someone who has a name like Janine Cummings can write about anything. Someone with a name like ours, well, we can only write about immigration. And then they call Oprah out for not having any Mexican-American authors in her book club since it started in 1996. Not one. Uh, Yeah. And then uh, Sabra continues, you are a king and a queen maker. How are you going to respond to the call? And Oprah kind of like was taken aback a little bit by this. I don't think she was expecting it. Which is hard to to do. Yeah. Yeah. And she said like, uh, well, I am guilty of not looking at uh, Mexican writers. I will now though, because my eyes have been open to see and to behave differently. But the whole thing is just like super awkward, (laughs) to be honest. I'm really proud of these authors for, you know, standing up. And there's actually a really good article on BuzzFeed from one of the authors who was there and just talks about the whole experience of being on the show and what it was like. But yeah, like that's kind of still ongoing. I think uh, she did not rescind the pick. It's still live. So I guess we'll just see what Oprah picks next. Maybe like, let's see if she really sticks to her promise here to look at more Mexican-American authors for her next pick. I hope so. One thing I thought was interesting, though, with all this controversy going on, no one's mentioning that she has multiple Bill Cosby books that she picked (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> that were like children's uh, books. They're still on the list. Yeah, so. that's a little. That's a little much. That's a lot. That's a lot yeah, for me. Same. Now, before we wrap up, though, we have to talk about Oprah's bombshell interview with Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. The timing of this episode could not be better, Kate. <laughs> right? Because when I started researching this episode, I didn't even know this was happening, and we ended up having to delay our recording. Thank goodness we did, because we moved it to after this happened. Yep. But this is a two-hour special that aired last Sunday, so March 7th, uh, time of recording, and it drew over 17 million viewers. It sure did. Mm-hmm. Some of the shocking revelations that came about from this include Meghan Markle stating that her life as a royal made her suicidal at one point, and that the institution, being like the royal family, did not support her. Prince Harry also said that the royal family cut him off financially in the first part of 2020. And he was just left with relying on what his mother, Princess Diana, left him. And perhaps the most shocking, or not, I don't know, to me it was, but who knows. But the most shocking to me was Meghan revealing that she was subject to just like relentless racial attacks from the media, but also that the royal family had concerns and conversations about how dark their son Archie's skin might be when he's born. I have been following this saga very closely because it's fascinating Mm. to me. And I'm not like a fan of the royal family. I think they're very problematic, but I'm just very interested in the fact that a monarch still exists and still has so much pull over the media. And there are a lot of conspiracy theories around why and how they might have been actually feeding the British press, nasty things about her. Oh. Not going to get into it, but look it up if you're interested at all in this because it gets really nasty. And I'm happy that Oprah gave them a platform to tell their side mm-hmm. of the story. Definitely. My favorite part of this is Oprah's reaction to that last quote about their son, Archie, because Megan says that and it goes to Oprah and she literally is speechless for a few moments, just blinking at her like, 
what? And and then she goes, she literally says, what? (laughs) You can almost see the wheels turning in her head like, oh, I just realized I just hit the jackpot right now. Yeah. (laughs) As far as like reporting and media. So so crazy. Yeah. And some people might be wondering, how did Oprah get this scoop? How did she do it? How did she get the scoop of the century? Well, in a New York Times article, they said that she got it the same way that she overcame childhood poverty in rural Mississippi to become the world's first black female billionaire. Time, effort, and a surfeit of natural charisma. That about sums it up. Yep. It actually turns out that, I mean, Oprah had a relationship with Meghan and Harry that dates back to early 2018, where she reached out to Meghan and proposed that they do an interview together. And a few months later, they met in London. Meghan invited to meet her at Kensington Palace, as one does, you know. So casual. (laughs) And they did. And it was just a lovely little meeting. And then later on, like maybe a month later, Oprah invites Meghan's mother, Doria, to her home for lunch and yoga. So again, like super casual, you know, go to Oprah's home for some yoga, some downward dog. (laughs) And just a few months after that, Oprah earns an invitation to the royal wedding. So it all kind of started back then. But back in January 2020, when the couple first decided to cut ties with the royal family, there were a bunch of rumors circulating that Oprah was the one who encouraged them to do so and that they should just like break free and move to L.A. and start their brand there. Oprah literally had to put out an official statement denying this. Just crazy. People are crazy. (laughs) Regardless of how anyone feels about this, one thing is certain, this is a very, very valuable piece of content. Because the interview itself, which was created all by Oprah and Harpo Studios and everything, was sold by uh, Viacom CBS to networks all around the globe. And obviously, everyone wanted a piece of this. And it's also a really perfect example of that Oprahfication, that Oprah therapy style kind of interviews. So we kept talking about that, but like this is what it is. It's it's kind of like another term for it is rapport talk, and it's kind of like confession as a form of therapy. But Oprah herself or the interviewer is confessing intimate details about her own life alongside guests and that just builds up the rapport breaks down barriers and it just creates like a more vulnerable relatable and raw experience and it's all just part of oprah's genius totally Mm -hmm. so that jess is a very brief not brief summary of (laughs) creative genius media mogul oprah winfrey this is barely scratching the surface i mean we, we didn't could even probably do a part two on her. <laughs> we probably could, and then a part three, and a part four, and a part five. But yep. we didn't even get into Oprah and Gail's big adventures. We didn't even Aww. touch on. I know we didn't even get onto her relationship with Stedman. Oh yeah. Who, uh, by the way, they've been together for more than thirty-three years. Never married. I guess he proposed in nineteen ninety-three, and they just never went through with it. But Oprah's been quoted as saying. He and I agree that had we tied the marital knot, we would not still be together. So, I don't know. It's the Goldie Hawn and Kurt Russell effect. Mm -hmm. And we barely touched on her partnership with Apple, which is like ongoing right now. Oh, my gosh. She's also hugely, hugely known for her charitable work. So, I just want to 
you know, bring that up. She's donated over 425 million throughout her whole career. And that includes over 100 million to the Oprah Winfrey Leadership Academy for girls in South Africa. But like Seth McFarland's statement earlier on, there is kind of a distinct dichotomy between the incredible good that she does versus some of those controversial moments and like propping up some very questionable figures. Yep. But I will leave you with one last quote that kind of solidifies her as a creative. Let's see if I can get through this. (laughs) I believe in you. Okay. I see all art as a compliment to telling people's stories. I'm in the storytelling business. I believe that the humanity that all of us share is the stories of our lives. And everybody has a story. Your story is as important as the next person's story. I realized from the time that I was a little girl that my role is to inspire, encourage, and uplift. I've been doing that since I was three years old, really. I want to let people see the light inside of themselves. Wow. So, Jess Guffey, I ask, is Oprah the worst? No, I can't ever <laughs> say she's the worst. Are you kidding? <laughs> I mean, I I don't love the controversial stuff with Dr. Oz and Dr. Phil. I have a very distinct hatred for people that try to pass off science is real science when it's Mm. just propaganda i think that's so horrible because people are so easily influenced by that stuff and Mm -hmm. some of it is so unhealthy and in dr phil's case like he's exploiting people that actually have issues and it's just obviously i have problems with all of that but i think her impact on the world and culture and media and literally everything insert other mediums here is incredible and where she came from putting all that in Mm. perspective is just it's something that we should all aspire to and be inspired by agreed i kind of went into this thinking i'd have more stuff that went sweating i don't know why i just like because all of that stuff with dr phil and everything that's so big now yeah i thought that would end up being the focal point but then you hear more about her background and again just all the good she's done I'm pro Oprah 100%. So thanks for listening to all of that. That was a lot. And uh, I mean, we would be remiss if we did not go into extensive detail about her. I mean, you can't, Mm -hmm. it's hard to just sum it up in an hour. So I think it was great. And you know what? Let's all go read a book because now I feel like I need to get back on reading books. Let's all, let's all go read a book. Let's all go Uh, read a book. You know, I'm still reading the book that you recommended for me like a year ago. Okay, I know. You're going to love it. That's the thing. Once you actually read it. I know. I'm, I mean, I'm like, I don't know, three-fourths of the way through. But, um, well, uh, Jess's dog is having a conniption fit. We got to go back to work. So thanks for listening, everyone. And please reach out if you have any other thoughts about Oprah or anything that we talked about today the royal interview yeah Uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts on that also follow us on social uh creatives are the worst on instagram and worst creatives on the tweeter (laughs) that's right and just uh go ahead and rate review subscribe all that fun stuff and then we'll be back to talk to you next week about more creatives who may or may not be the worst bye goodbye Thanks for listening to Creatives Are the Worst. If you like what you're hearing, or if you think that we're the worst, please leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice. We'd love to hear from you. 
You can also contact us directly at podcasts at designpickle.com. And a big thanks to Design Pickle for sponsoring the show. Join us next week as we once again try to answer the question, are creatives the worst? <laughs>